Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Kathy Sheridan. On today's show, Roisin Ingle talks to theatre maker Louise White about her show. This is the funeral of your life, a piece of art she made in response to the death of her father five years ago and an attempt to cope with her grief. She says it's not morose, it's about talking about death in a healthy way. Louise is performing the show as part of a fundraising exercise for a new musical she's working on called Poor Little Rich Girl. That show is a musical about privilege and inequality in which Louise will explore invisible systems of privilege in Ireland by examining the implications of her own. Here's Louise talking to Roisin. Louise, hello. hello. I was just saying to you when you came in that this is our first post-repeal meeting and the last time you were in the studio you were campaigning, as you all were, uh, for the repeal of the 8th, which has since happened. So a little bit of a... Praise be, yeah. yeah. Woo! <laughs> I'm sure you're exhausted like everyone else. I think people don't realise when you put your heart and soul into something like that, and especially as you shared your personal experience of abortion, it takes a lot out of you and you just kind of, uh, it doesn't just, just because the win happens that you kind of just are, oh, everything's fine now. And No, absolutely not. I was, I was spent. I was totally spent, like I gave it all I could and I felt like I left no stone unturned and I feel like I did it in a healthy way, you know, and made sure I had the right kind of support around me. But I was wiped afterwards, wiped, absolutely. Okay, well, big long break now, I think, from any kind of uh, campaigning, but you're not that kind of person, so, and we'll talk about <laughs> that now because there's always something, isn't there, to uh, to try and change. Um, but the show that you have running at the moment is called This Is The Funeral Of Your Life and I'm surprised in some ways that anyone went to see it with that title. <laughs> I know, right? Because it's so funny because when I tell some people, like for example, the school moms and I go, yeah, it's on, it's called This is the Funeral of Your Life. And they go, oh God, that sounds a bit uh, odd. Uh, and then at the same time, you can talk to other people and their eyes widen and they and they go, oh my God, I've always thought about that. You know, the concept of being able to actually engage with what your own funeral might be like or, you know, you attend somebody else's funeral and the eulogy is happening and you think, how will people talk about me? How will I be eulogised? Do I matter? Like these little private thoughts that you have and that's the aspect that I'm trying to explore in this show. And where did the idea come from? So my dad died five years ago and he was, he'd had a really full life. He was 84 when he died. We were all around him at the hospital bed, um, his wife and his six children. So all in all, it was like a good, he'd had a good innings and um, he'd had lived a very full life. So his funeral was really big and I hadn't been expecting that at all because we were all, you know, deeply upset. We knew that dad was going to die and we were all really concerned with that. So I hadn't thought about the shape really that his funeral would take. Even the fact that we sat down with The Undertaker with my mother and we said, yes, we'd like this song and we'd like to do this reading. But I just hadn't anticipated the celebratory aspect of it and I hadn't anticipated how big it would be and I hadn't anticipated how much I would be impacted by him being remembered in a really uh, strong way that was very true to him. Because 
that's not always the case in funerals. So that was a thing that I just couldn't shake after my father's funeral, that I was thinking, you know, he'd done so much. Who am I? What do I amount to? And I was having these little private thoughts, and of course it was like gnawing away at my mental health or my general feelings of self-worth or wanting to be important or want to be valuable, generally. And um, the thoughts just... You know, I'd be driving the kids to school and the thoughts would be in my head or I'd be in the shower and the thoughts would be in my head. So I started to talk to other people about it or other artist friends. And again, people would just go, oh my God, I've totally thought that. And they think it's mortifying to admit to it, <laughs> you know. People think that it's self-indulgent or, you know, you're just not supposed to talk about things like that, but it's in your head already. So I knew when I started to have casual conversations that there was something in it and I couldn't let it go. So I had to try and figure it out. I had to try and figure out like how you make sense of yourself and your place in the world and if it if you matter or if it's okay to ask that question in this show. So tell us about it then. What what could do people expect and when they walk in? Is it, it's not set up like a funeral, is it? Or is it? Same kind of. <laughs> so they come into the space and there's a big there's kind of funeral parlour vibes, you know, there's oh, a big geez. huge orange curtain. Funeral parlour vibes. Yeah, I love funeral it. Yeah, parlor vibes. Yeah. Well, in a contemporary fun, cheeky way, but um so they come into the space and there's a big yeah, orange curtain and there's a you know, a tripod with a big wreath on it and um, the performers come into the space then and they get to know the audience. They ask them a few questions and they warm them up a bit and then they, they begin with a thought experiment with them where they ask them to to think about where they are in their lives now, think about how much they think they have left and then they continue the thought experiment and ask them to let go. I mean, this happens over about 15 minutes. I'm just trying to give you an idea. And then we... We riff basically on the idea of Irish funerals. So we take some time to choose the right kind, the exact right kind of music for the audience for their funeral. We take, um, we have a wake for them where there's lots of sandwich making and cups of tea being made and kettles boiling, and the audience help us out with that. I won't give too much away, but it's one of the really funny moments of the show. And um, then we go. It gets a little bit more poignant, and it gets a little bit more deep. And then we go into the idea of trying to show a ceremony um, for the audience. So we have we have a dancer and an opera singer and an actor on stage. So they enact all the different aspects of it. Okay, um, I'm just thinking as you're talking there about the death cafes in England, which have I don't know if you've heard of those. Yeah, uh, this idea that we should talk um, and engage with this subject is mm-hmm. really important and yeah. healthy for us. Yeah. Which, like you said, the two reactions at the beginning, some people will be, oh no, I don't want to think about that, and actually, it's really important to engage with it. What kind of responses have you had from the audience? So just to, on that point, like when I was doing my research for this, so I encountered death cafes, but I also encountered a lot end of life doulas. So you know with the way people would get a doula to help them facilitate their birth alongside the midwife but this is a whole new practice that's emerging in the UK as well and the idea of an end of life doula is doula is somebody who can facilitate the experience to help people know that it's not so scary and it's a natural transformative process and that's the kind of energy that we tried to come at the show with so we did a lot of research into that so that the audience are facilitated in a way where they can think about their own experience without ever feeling fragile or exposed so That's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect of it is that it's impossible to escape humour when you go into something like this. When you make an observation, a really simple observation, just about somebody making sandwiches, the audience is in stitches because they're like, oh my God, that's so true. So we have, we just embrace the humour, the idea of the fact that we're making all these observations around Irish funerals. And there's some real truth in them, which creates a lightness and um, 
uh, giddiness in the audience. I've been involved recently with an organisation called HUG, which is Healing Untold Grief Groups, which is around bereavement after suicide. And I'm just wondering, which is because suicide is a different in ways more complex kind of bereavement. Has that come up within the shows ever or have people kind of shared that kind of thing? No, it hasn't. It hasn't. Uh, I feel like you're absolutely right. It does seem like a different kind of thing. And it's a space that I just didn't even address in the show because I felt like it's too... The idea of the show is to let people know that they're valuable and they matter. And I just didn't feel like I could handle that kind of material um, I didn't feel like it was responsible for me to go near it. Do no, you know what really, I mean? Yeah. It's really understandable that you didn't. I'm just yeah. curious and I'm just wondering if someone walked in whose bereavement, say, or knew somebody. Mm. But it's a different way. You're almost, you're letting, you're facing their own mortality, really. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. about the people thinking about yeah. their own potential death and how they'll be remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, has it helped people, do you think? Or has it helped yourself as well that, that in those nagging private thoughts that you mentioned at the beginning? Have you kind of Yeah, no, it has definitely helped me. Yeah, so the resolution I think I've, uh, that I know is like you have for me I have I am responsible for my life choices and I decided that I don't want to be in situations that don't feel growthful anymore or that don't fulfill me so I want to make sure that um like one of the questions I was asking myself in the beginning was how will I be remembered and then also am I happy with with my choices am I satisfied with the direction of what I'm doing now my life hasn't changed radically but I've just made sure that anything that's toxic or anything that doesn't seem worthwhile like your time is short your time is valuable so try to make choices that um, go in the direction you want them to go in rather than be trapped by things that you don't want it's easier said than done obviously but it, it has made me resolved to try and be better, do better in a way that is possible. So just so people, if they're wondering, because there are three more dates of this show left that people can go and see, but are they going to be depressed leaving? You did mention laughter, but has anyone... You know, there might be this no, idea. No, you're going to walk out of no. the funeral of your life feeling yeah. quite no. Maudlin. First of all, the sign, the minute they enter the space, there's a huge carnival sign that is three metres by three metres <laughs> that says, this is the funeral of your life. So we're trying to create the audience experience from the very beginning to let them know that it's not going to be morose. So then um, after the show, mostly, I've, I've um, made quite a few shows now at this point and it's the first show that people are killed coming up to me afterwards and grabbing my arm and telling me stories and they've this to say and they've that to say and they feel uplifted and they feel minded and they feel like they've had um, it's kind of a gamut of emotions because we get them on board with a lot of laughter first and then we go to the more poignant places but by that time they're ready so I don't think that I feel that the word that people say is uplifted Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, you're already working on your next show and you're fundraising currently for that. Mm -hmm. So if people want to donate, they can go. Is there a... All over my website, there's a support me section. Okay, support, Louise. So my Um, website is louisewhiteperformance.com and there's a support me section. People can go and support you there. So tell us about this. It's a very interesting title called Poor Little Rich Girl. And you are looking at privilege and things like that in society. Yeah. So what what has been the genesis of that idea? Because you've been working on it for a couple of years now. Yeah. The genesis of that idea is like difficult... conversations that you have with people that are really close to you when you have different worldviews from them, right? So it's like Christmas table conversations or conversations with your old school friends or conversations that from people from a different gender with you where you know that the people are genuinely well-intentioned but I feel crippled sometimes because I can't articulate myself properly when I'm trying to explain things that I have learned about how society is 
principally unjust, how it favours some people over others. And the reason I'm making the show is just like the beginning of This is the Funeral of Your Life is because I'm really struggling to succeed in those conversations. I'm really struggling to be able to articulate myself well and say and talk about privilege without people thinking that privilege is something which is, you know, silver spoony or it's people who went to private school or it's, you know, something that is very elite. So what I'm trying to explore in this show is that privilege is a system that is invisible that favours some people over others. Obviously, like the colour of your skin is visible, but lots of the ways that you benefit from that is invisible. And when you try to talk to people about it, even I was on an artist residency and there was the artist there and I was trying to talk to an artist and I was saying, yeah, this is what I'm researching. And he was like, you know what? That really pisses me off when people talk about privilege, right? Because the thing is, I've worked for everything that I've gotten and, you know, I'm gay and I had this experience in the 70s and then this happened and like I've, and I'm, sitting there going, oh my God, my heart is beating so fast, I'm going to try to explain this. And I'm saying, I'm. what I'm trying to say is, we are not trying, if you talk about privilege, the system, I'm not trying to take anything away from you, the system already exists. And if we all accept that it exists, then we can try to move forward, and then we can try to do better. So that's all very heavy, right? So this is why it's a musical. Ta-da! <laughs> Right, maybe jazz hands, maybe not. And the reason it's called (laughs) Poor Little Rich Girl is because I, you know, benefit from a lot of privilege, right? I am white. The way that society generally understands, the way that society understands my gender, I'm married to a man. Everybody understands that. I don't have to struggle to try and advocate for myself or explain my place in the world. I also am middle class. So all of these things benefit me, right? So it's called Poor Little Rich Girl because I have to address and unpack my privilege, so that people, if I accept my own in in the show, then we can all, you know, I'm not pretending that I don't have something. So unpacking that so that we can all understand our own or so that a theatre audience can understand theirs. Because it's a funny question. Do you ever feel like people who talk about privilege or, you know, explain it are actually not always addressing their own great privileges? Like I I look at sometimes commentators on that subject and I Mm. think... Yeah, there's a bit of an elephant in the room in that I know you're standing up for all these things, but mm. it should be addressed. I think the, it has to start with us, doesn't it? Yeah, How did we benefit? because you pretend it's not happening then. Like, that's this whole thing that happens is you pretend it's not happening. So you have to engage in your own and you have to address it so that I can say, I'm not, like, I'm not, I also believe that people who have privilege are not all bad people. Like, that's categorically untrue. The reason I want to try and resolve this in the show is because there's aspects of things that people don't know and the system isn't explained in the right way. So it's not like people are making decisions to be deliberately nasty. It's that um, there's a kind of collective denial in society about its existence. Mm. So you're trying to raise money for this and you're going to be putting it on. When do you hope to have it on stage? So I hope to have it on stage in um, September 2020. So for this year, for 2019, I'm developing the work. So what I'm raising funds for right now is for the research and development of the work. I plan to go for an Arts Council funding structure for the 2020 aspect of it. So for right now, it's for research and developing that. So to work with a composer, to cast it for rehearsal space, all that kind of stuff. Which costs a lot of money. It's, it's costs a dollar. Yeah, a very hard thing. Um, in terms of funding for art generally, have you got issues with that? Do you think that we're doing enough to support the arts community? Right. Well, I mean, no. I feel like it's really... You know, it's incredibly difficult. And I was thinking about this on the way in here. Um, 
you know, obviously the Arts Council are in a difficult situation as well because I can't remember the exact statistics now, but I know that the percentage of the budget that the government allocates to the arts is like 0.1% in Ireland and it's point sorry, point not one percent in Ireland, and it's not point not six percent generally in Europe. So, like they're dealing with a very scrappy pot in the first place. But like for myself in the independent art sector, it's you know it's really um, crucifying, particularly this year. You know because they're trying to renegotiate how they offer funding structures. So they've cut a lot of resource programs, residencies, project awards. So in 2019, it's just very, very bleak. So this is the first time I've had to do this kind of fundraising event. Um, and look, there's lots of learning involved and there's I'm making some nice relationships around it and it tests your mettle and you learn how to talk about your work and you learn how to advocate for yourself. But at the same time, like, I'd really just like to be making art. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, well, let's talk about the art. You are making that, how people can see it for the next the three dates um, in the Dunamay's uh, Centre in Port Leash. That's on the 22nd. Mm-hmm. And then on the 25th and the 26th in the Everyman in Cork. And then the final one is on the 28th in uh, Carlo Visual that's all February dates so -hmm. there's three more opportunities for people to attend the funeral of their life yeah and it's funny it's funny which is much more fun I won't talk to you about privilege I promise (laughs) (laughs) you won't do all that boring privilege stuff no no No, but I think um, no it's really important and I love the fact that you own your own privilege and you explain that and about the invisible ways as well because a lot of people don't see the Mm -hmm. the layers of privilege that we have and it's just I think that word has become really annoying for people right it's like the new I mean we have it in the headline in an article or had a few days ago in the Irish Times and even just seeing it in a headline it's a it's a case about a privileged couple who were fighting over something whatever I just yeah it's a bit of a red rag to some people but I know it's like way to either insight or shut down a conversation yeah. just say the word so that's why you're not putting privilege in the title of that work I imagine no Poor Little Rich Girl's Poor much better. Girl, yeah. <laughs> okay, Louise White, it's really nice to talk to you again. Continue all your brilliant work and I hope you come back in to talk to us about that work when it's finished. Would love to. Thank you so much. And that's it for today. Thanks to our guest, Louise White. And you can find out more about our theatre on louisewhiteperformance.com. You can stream or download the Women's Podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify and all good podcast apps. And remember, we are fond of praise. So feel free to subscribe and write a review while you're at it. If you want to get in touch with us directly, we are on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.